You are listening to the EFCA Theology Podcast, which exists to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. In 2008, the EFCA adopted an updated, strengthened statement of faith. Following that update, the EFCA Spiritual Heritage Committee wrote the book Evangelical Convictions, an exposition of the statement of faith of the EFCA to help pastors and church leaders better understand what we believe. On this episode of the podcast, Lois McMartin reads Chapter 7 of Evangelical Convictions. Lois served as the Director of Member Care for EFCA Reach Global. Article 7, The Church. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which He is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, These ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. God's gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. Sociologists have observed an interesting trend in America in recent years, the growing number of unchurched believers. It used to be considered natural that if you claimed to be a Christian, you would be a part of a church. In fact, for most of Christian history, it was believed that membership in a church was an essential part of Christian life. Already in the mid-third century, the church father Cyprian declared, there is no salvation outside the church. The unchurched were assumed to be unbelievers. But no more. More and more people who express some allegiance to Jesus view the church as simply an optional extra, a mere helpful tool, or perhaps even a detriment to spiritual life. In one poll, when asked, do you think that a person can be a good Christian if he or she doesn't attend church, 88% of those who don't attend church said yes, but so did 70% of those who do. A number of reasons may account for this shift in opinion. Americans are independent by nature. Increasingly, they separate spirituality from real life in the world. And because of well-publicized scandals, many have grown cynical about organized religion. But this believing without belonging, this faith without fellowship, bears little resemblance to what we see displayed in the pages of the New Testament. More than that, it reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel message itself. From the beginning, when God declared that it was not good for man to be alone, Genesis 2.18, the divine design for human life included social relationships, a community that in some way reflected the community of love found within the Trinity. Sin ruptured the relationship not only of man with God but also between human beings. The image of God in the world was defaced. But God in His grace has purpose to restore His fallen creation and to redeem a people for Himself. In Jesus Christ, God has acted to rescue sinful human beings from His wrath and to reconcile them to Himself. This work of Christ in His cross and resurrection is now applied to us by the Holy Spirit, who unites us with Christ so that what is true of Him becomes true of us. 
And in uniting us with Christ, the Spirit also creates a new community we call the Church. The Church, as those saved by God's grace and united with Christ by God's Spirit, becomes the embodiment of the Gospel in the world. God's Gospel creates the Church. We can say this first on the basis of what happened historically. When Jesus began his public ministry, he chose 12 disciples to accompany him on the nucleus of a new community, cross-reference Matthew 4.18.22. When Peter first declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus commended him and then announced the consequence of this confession. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, Matthew 16.18. Jesus easily moved from Peter's spirit-inspired recognition of who he was to the promise of the building of a new community. The two go together. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to the crowds in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people responded in repentance and faith and were baptized that day. They did not go home to become followers of Jesus privately and independently, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, 42 and 47. Saving faith entails a new community. The account of the ministry of Paul in Acts and the witness of his letters reinforces this connection. During his missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas went back to each of the cities in which they had preached, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, Acts 14.22. And they appointed elders for them in each church, Acts 14.23. In his ministry of the gospel, Paul did not just make converts. He integrated those converts into new communities he called churches. From the beginning, God's gospel created a new social solidarity. Compare Galatians 3.28. The new community created by the gospel is evident historically, but it is also grounded theologically and as such contributes to a discussion of the nature of the church. Number one, the nature of the church. The Greek term ekklesia, translated as church, simply means an assembly. But in the New Testament, it is used with a particular theological meaning in two senses. It is important to distinguish between the two, but as we shall see, they must not be separated. A. The True Church First, the Bible speaks of the church as the totality of those united with Christ by faith, resulting in a new standing before God and a new relationship with one another. In this sense, Paul can say that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25, and that Christ is the Savior of the church, Ephesians 5.23, compare also 1.22 and 23. We refer to this as the true church, for it is a community ultimately known only to God, for only God can know the depths of the human heart. Only he can perceive with absolute certainty whether the faith that is professed is truly believed. We may consider the composition of the true church from two perspectives. The true church comprises all who have been justified by God's faith through faith alone in Christ alone. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is central to our understanding of the gospel. Martin Luther who did so much to revive the Church's understanding in this area, regarded it as the article on which the Church stands or falls, 
and John Calvin said it was the main hinge on which religion turns. At the core of the gospel is the good news that God has acted in Jesus Christ to rescue lost sinners from a condition of divine condemnation and wrath into a new relationship of favor with himself. Where once there was enmity and alienation, now there is peace. Justification is the act of God by which he brings about this new state of affairs. As Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 Justification is a term that comes from the law court. It is a judicial acquittal of the innocent, contrasted with a conviction of the guilty. Deuteronomy 25.1 and Proverbs 17.15 Justification does not make a person righteous. It simply declares a person to be so. So when a judge renders a verdict of not guilty, the defendant is justified. But how then can God justify the wicked, as Paul says that he does, Romans 4.5? Wouldn't that make God himself an unjust judge? This is precisely the issue the Apostle deals with in the first four chapters of his letter to the Romans. From one eighteen to 3.20, Paul argues that sin is universal. Everyone knows about God, whether it be through the external evidence of creation, through the internal evidence of one's own conscience, or from God's revelation through his law. Yet each of us, in our own way, has turned away from him, refusing to allow him to be God in our lives. Consequently, we are all without excuse before him. We are all, Jew and Gentile alike, guilty of moral failure. Every mouth will be silenced before the judgment of God. Romans 3.19 Then in Romans 3.21-25, Paul sets forth a wonderful truth in what Luther called the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 21-25 Paul is insistent that God is righteous in justifying sinners, both Jewish and Gentile. His case rests on three factors reflecting the hallmarks of the rediscovery of the gospel at the time of the Reformation. First, the source of our justification is found in God and His grace. This justification comes to sinners freely by His grace, Romans 3.24. In ourselves, on the basis of our own merits, no one could be in the right with God, for all have sinned, Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. 
If we are to be justified at all, it must be by God's grace alone. Second, Paul insists that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, Romans 3.24. That is, the ground of our justification is not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, Romans 3.25, a propitiary sacrifice. God is just. He is the righteous judge who maintains the moral order of his creation. Yet in his grace, he is also the justifier. In his love, he acts righteously to save unrighteous sinners. He forgives them by acquitting them of their moral offenses, and God's justice and his justifying grace are held together, Romans 3.25, by the atoning sacrifice of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the God-man, acts as our righteous substitute, bearing our sin and the death that it deserves. In Christ, God the judge, who is himself the offended party, bears his own judgment, propitiating his own wrath. We are justified solely by God's grace because that saving work of God comes through Christ alone and not on the basis of our own deeds. But how can Christ's death on a cross result in our justification? How does Christ's sacrifice apply to us personally? If the source of our justification is God's grace alone and its ground is Christ alone, then the instrument of justification must be faith alone. Three times in this passage, Paul affirms it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 3.22, also verse 25 and 26. Faith is not our contribution to the saving work of God. It is simply the means of receiving it. Faith is not a meritorious work. It is the beggar's empty hand. And our faith itself is only possible through the grace of God, leaving us with no grounds to boast before God. John 6.65 and also Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For that reason, faith and grace are complementary. Romans 4.16, for our faith rests on the righteousness of another. Faith receives God's salvation for faith on our part is what joins us to Christ. That union is not a reward of our faith, but simply a consequence of it. Jonathan Edwards uses the illustration of marriage to make this point. As when a man offers himself to a woman in marriage, he does not give himself to her as a reward of her receiving him in marriage. Her receiving him is not considered as a worthy deed in her, for which he rewards her by giving himself to her. But it is by her receiving him that the union is made by which she have him for a husband. It is on her part the union itself. So by faith and faith alone, we are joined to Christ, such that he bears our sin and we receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 and Philippians 3, 9. There is no legal fiction, for by virtue of this union with Christ, God actually constitutes a new legal status. God can justify the ungodly, for though they are ungodly in themselves, they are now righteous by virtue of their union with Christ, Romans 5.19. 
His righteousness is imputed, it is credited or reckoned to us. In justifying us, God declares to be what he in his grace has established. When Jesus died on a Roman cross, the judgment of the last day was brought back into the midst of history, and in our union with Christ by faith, the final verdict is anticipated. In Christ, our sins were condemned, our punishment was born, we receive his righteousness, and by God's grace, we are justified in his sight. Justification is a judicial act recognizing that we have been put in the right with God. But this legal expression has an important communal component. Our justification by God means that we are members in good standing of the company of God's covenant people. In that sense, justification is integral to our understanding of the church, and we affirm that all who are justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone are members of the true church. Number two, the true church comprises those united by the Spirit into the body of Christ, of which he is the head. In our consideration of the work of the Holy Spirit in Article 6, we have already seen how in the Spirit we are baptized into union with Christ. There our focus was on the new relationship with Christ which this union creates. But our vertical union with Christ also has an important horizontal implication. We each come alone to God, but in coming to God we do not remain alone. We are simultaneously constituted into the corporate body of believers. Thus, if in union with Christ, God becomes our Father, then all other believers similarly united to Christ become our brothers and sisters. And if by virtue of our union with Christ we are a part of his body, then we are fellow members of that body with every other person who is also in communion with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17 and 12-27 Therefore, we affirm that the true church comprises all those united by the Spirit into the body of Christ. This distinctively Pauline metaphor of the body is used by the Apostle to emphasize both the unity and diversity that exists amongst Christians, Romans 12.5 and 1 Corinthians 12.12. Through our Spirit-created union into one body, social distinctions, and even the distinction between Jew and Gentile no longer divide us, 1 Corinthians 12.13. But that same Spirit also distributes various gifts, creating a diverse community with a wide variety of roles, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 31. Each is to serve the other in a community of love. The church is united under the authority of Christ as its head, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, 4, 14 through 15, and 5, 23, Colossians 1, 18 and 24 from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Ephesians four fourteen through 15 This is a wonderful body, a body full of variety, with people of all sorts, differing in their interests and skills and gifts, but each playing a vital part in the well-being of the whole. Just as with our physical bodies, each member is important and should be valued by all, and each should be guided by the head, who is Christ himself. But already we have begun to move from a discussion of the true church, universal in scope and encompassing all true believers of all time, to the real-life community of people interacting in relationships found in what is called the local church. So we now consider the second 
sense in which we understand the word church. Number B, the local church. Number one, a visible community manifesting the true church in the world. One can speak of the church as a body known only to God, for in an ultimate sense, only God knows those who are truly His. But generally, in the New Testament, the church refers to a community visible in the world, and through the term can refer to the community of Christians within a large geographical area, it more commonly denotes a local gathering of believers in one place. Here in this local network of relationships, the gospel is embodied in the world and worked out in our lives. This community of Christians in the local church is a microcosm of the universal church. In that sense, the local body is not simply a part of the whole, but a manifestation of the whole, encapsulating in itself its essential qualities as a community of believers redeemed by the blood of Christ. Paul can speak both of all Christians constituting the body of Christ Ephesians 1, 22-23, and of a local community as that same body, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven. In each local church, Christ is present, Matthew eighteen twenty, and in the love displayed in its midst, John thirteen thirty five and seventeen twenty to 23 and in the quality of the lives of its members living in the world, Matthew five sixteen and 1 Peter 2, 9-12. Each local church is to demonstrate to the world something of the truth and beauty of the gospel of Christ. Two, local church membership should be composed only of believers. Because the local church is to manifest the true church in the world, the essential requirement for membership in each should be the same, a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we affirm that membership in the local church should be composed only of believers regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This element of our statement reflects a strong feature of our free church heritage. Coming out of state churches in Scandinavia that incorporated into their membership all who had been baptized, irrespective of their personal commitment to Christ, the early free church believers formed congregations of those who explicitly gave testimony to and showed evidence of personal conversion. In saying that local church membership should, rather than must, be composed only of believers, we are simply recognizing that we do not have infallible knowledge of who is actually a member of the true church. We can only make a judgment on the basis of a credible profession of faith. Membership in the local church is a corporate affirmation of a person's profession, but we must not give the false impression, leading to a false assurance that such an affirmation is unerring. Jesus has warned us that some who appear to be sheep are really wolves in disguise, Acts twenty twenty nine through thirty. That the profession of some will prove false, Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three, and that some will be surprised by the verdict on the last day, Matthew twenty five thirty one through forty six. In making a judgment about whether a person is a member of the true church. We cannot demand what is impossible to accomplish. However, we strongly affirm here that the local church is to be a fellowship of believers. 
The local church ought to be composed of those who have personally embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith and have been brought into his body by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and into local church membership ought to reflect that. Number two, the ordinances of the church. The gospel creates the church. In their efforts to reshape the church that emerged from the Middle Ages, the evangelical reformers of the 16th century affirmed this principle by insisting that an essential mark of a church must be a true proclamation of the gospel. But the church is to be a visible community, and so they also declared that a further identifying mark of the church was the proper administration of the ordinances or sacraments. These ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, help to define who are part of the church as they visibly and tangibly express the gospel. We will discuss the nature of the ordinances, considering their source and purpose, before describing each more specifically. A. The nature of the ordinances. 1. Their source. The ordinances are mandated by the Lord Jesus. The description of the practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances reflects their source. They come to us by way of an authoritative order, a mandate, from the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus' great commission found in Matthew's Gospel mandates that in making disciples we are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. The book of Acts records how baptism was a practice of the church from the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 38-41. The church's practice of the Lord's Supper began with the disciples' last meal with Jesus on the night before his death. When he shared the Passover meal with them, he gave them bread and wine and said, Do this in remembrance of me, Luke twenty-two nineteen. The early Christians took this to be a command with abiding significance, extending beyond that night to include all believers in the ongoing life of the church. When Paul instructs the church in Corinth regarding their conduct when they gather to share the Lord's Supper, he says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. 1 Corinthians 11.23 These two practices, baptism and the Lord's Supper, come to us as outward signs given by Jesus himself, and they have been practiced by the church in some form throughout church history. We accept only these two as ordinances with this divine warrant. Their distinctiveness among the commands given by Christ to the church is reflected in their unique purpose. Number two, their purpose. The ordinances visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Why have these ordinances been given to the church? What purpose do they serve? Most significantly, baptism and the Lord's Supper visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Certainly the mere application of water or the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup do not have inherent meaning. For that reason, these acts must always be set within a context that includes the proclamation of the word of God. When the gospel is preached in conjunction with these ordinances, they become, in the words of Augustine, visible words. These observable acts speak to us of the wonderful truths of the gospel, Christ's sacrificial death, our union with him, the new life that is ours, and his glorious coming by which God's saving purpose will be brought to completion. 
Yet the ordinances are not only seen, they are also experienced physically. We eat and drink and we are washed, hence the term tangibly in our statement. In our participation in baptism and the Lord's Supper, the preached gospel is personalized and we are individually engaged in a tangible response. These are God-given means by which we respond to the gospel personally as it is set before us in these visible and tangible ways. Number two, the ordinances are not the means of salvation. The biblical story amply illustrates the common human fallacy of confusing the sign with the reality it signifies. Israel was prone to confuse the physical temple in Jesus with the God who was to be worshipped there, assuming that the presence of the former assured them of the saving presence of the latter. Jeremiah warned them that this was not the case. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 29. Or they trusted in the outward sign of animal sacrifice and ignored the inward commitment to the Lord and His ways that such an act was meant to express. For example, Isaiah 1, 2 through 20. Such confusion has also often plugged the church. Our Scandinavian free church forebears live in a Christian culture in which participation in the ordinances was too often devoid of spiritual commitment. It was commonly believed that a person experienced forgiveness of sin and was brought into a right relationship with God merely through the act of baptism or through participating in the Lord's Supper. Our statement is explicit in rejecting that misunderstanding. These ordinances are signs pointing us to the reality of Jesus' saving work in his death and resurrection. We are saved by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. B. When celebrated by the church in genuine faith, the ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. The ordinances are not the means of our salvation, but this does not mean that they are devoid of any spiritual benefit. Far from it. They are given to the church by our Lord for our good as a God-ordained means of spiritual growth and edification. In that sense, though not the means of salvation, they can nonetheless be considered means of grace. Like the preaching of the word, corporate worship, prayer, and our fellowship with other Christians, these ordinances are means God uses to strengthen us in our faith. Because of their spiritual benefit coming through their connection to the gospel, the ordinances are to be celebrated by the church. We are to practice them with a spirit of thanksgiving and praise for the wonderful gospel they express. As we come in faith to be baptized or to share in the Lord's Supper, God the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to attest to the gospel of which they speak. The one confirms the new believer in the inaugural act of faith, and the other nourishes the believer in the ongoing Christian life. Both serve to separate the believer from the world and to give a visible designation of those who belong to the body of Christ. Again, we stress that the ordinances are not efficacious in and of themselves. They do not edify apart from the subjective spiritual response, which they both presuppose and foster what we call here genuine faith. These are signs which point us to the reality of the gospel. We must not confuse the two. It is through faith in Christ alone, 
not our participation in these ordinances, that we are saved. B, a description of the ordinances. Number one, baptism. We first describe the ordinance of baptism and we discuss it as it was more clearly practiced in the New Testament as an act involving believers. We present a theology of baptism that all evangelical churches could affirm when baptizing professing believers. The practice of baptizing infants of believing parents also allowed under our statement has to be understood in a different way. The practice of baptism emerges in the New Testament without preparation or explanation in the ministry of John the Baptist, who came to Israel preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus himself responded to John's call and submitted to his baptism, identifying himself with a sinful Israel, though he himself was without sin. Then in his great commission, Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples of all nations through baptism and teaching, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. On the day of Pentecost, after the dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit and after Peter had finished preaching his powerful sermon in Jerusalem, the people cried out and asked, Brothers, what shall we do? To which Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Acts two thirty-seven through 38 And we read, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 2.41 This pattern continued. The apostles preached, and the people responded in faith and were baptized. Acts 8.12-13, through 13, 36-38, through 38, 9, verse 18, 10, verse 47-48, through 48, 16, verse 14-15, through 15, and verse 31 through 34, and chapter 18, verse 8. In the book of Acts, there seems to have been no conception of an unbaptized believer. Baptism was a universal practice in the church. But what does baptism mean? One could expound its significance by considering the three actors who play a part in every act of baptism. Baptism as a believer's profession First, from the perspective of the person who comes to be baptized, baptism is something we do. Ananias said to Paul after he had received his vision of the risen Lord, Now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Acts twenty-two sixteen. Baptism is an act by which a person publicly calls upon the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. From the perspective of the person being baptized, baptism is the subjective response to the objective truth of the gospel. It is the biblically prescribed public action that corresponds to a personal response of faith to the gospel. Baptism as the church's affirmation. But it is important to remember that a new believer can only ask to be baptized, or better, respond to the command to be baptized. No one baptizes him or herself. Baptism requires a second actor, the local church. In baptism, the first actor comes as one professing faith in Christ. The second actor, the church, hears that profession and affirms that profession 
and then publicly recognizes the one baptized as a Christian brother or sister. Baptism has, from the beginning, been seen as the point of entry into the visible body of Christ. In Galatians 3:26-29, Paul describes those who have been baptized into Christ as sons of God and part of a new community, a community of Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is baptism into the body of Christ and so into the church. Baptism was the point at which a person was publicly recognized as a Christian. Becoming a Christian is very personal, but it is never private, for being adopted as a child of God means being a part of a family, a very visible and tangible family embodied in a local church. Baptism is the initial means by which we are recognized by that family and are welcomed into that family to enjoy its privileges and to bear its responsibilities. The responsibility of the church, then, towards those who come to be baptized is to affirm those who offer a credible profession of faith. Baptism as God's promise. Baptism is something we do, and baptism is something the church does, but most importantly, baptism is also something that God does. Consider the illustration of a wedding. A baptismal profession is like our matrimonial, I do. At our baptism, we pledge our faith to God and promise to follow Christ all the days of our life. And in a wedding, there are two who promise. And in baptism, our promise is but a promise to the prior promise of God. In baptism, that promise of God is reaffirmed, made visible, and in fact, acted out. In the very act of baptism itself, when we are plunged under the water, we are buried with Christ into his death, Romans 6, 2-4. We go with him to the cross. We enter his tomb. And in union with Christ, our old sinful life dies. Baptism, first of all, proclaims God's promise that Christ's death has become our own and that he has borne our judgment. But in baptism, we don't stay under the water. We are raised up with Christ to new life. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Romans 6, 4. In baptism, Peter says, we are like Noah in his ark, saved out of the judgment that threatens us through God's gracious provision. 1 Peter three twenty through 21 And in that passage, Peter reminds us that the water is not only a symbol of judgment, it also symbolizes cleansing. That water washes us clean from the dirt of our sin. Paul recounts the words of Ananias to him, Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Acts twenty two sixteen. In Hebrews ten twenty two we read, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Baptism pictures God's gracious promise of moral cleansing. 
In some parts of the early church, those who were baptized actually took off their old clothes, the symbol of their old life of sin, and when they came out of the water, they were given new clothes to symbolize their putting on the righteousness of Christ. This was meant to capture the affirmation of Paul, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Galatians 3, 26-27 Baptism is the picture of a promise, the visible sign of an invisible grace. In baptism, God promises in the gospel is made personal to the one who is baptized as it is displayed before our eyes. This symbolic act displays God uniting us to Christ in his death and resurrection, washing our sins away and clothing us with new garments of righteousness. For this reason, Paul is probably referring to their time of their baptism, which represents the whole process of conversion, when he says to the Corinthians, who once were as immoral as any pagans could be, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians six eleven. Baptism and the Holy Spirit. This naturally raises the question, what is the relationship between baptism and the saving work of the Holy Spirit? Isn't it the Spirit who washes us and who unites us with Christ in his death and resurrection and who joins us to the body of Christ, the church? 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. How are baptism in water and baptism in the Spirit related? Interestingly, in the book of Acts, The temporal connection between water baptism and the reception of the Spirit is varied, as sometimes the former occurs before, sometimes simultaneous with, and sometimes after the latter. This suggests that God is sovereign and can act however He likes, and that the work of His Spirit is not tied to any outward act. On the other hand, enough of a connection is established that conceptually the two should be linked, leading one to believe that baptism in water is the outward act that pictures the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It is the sign of the new covenant promise of the prophets. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you of all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five through 26 Baptism in the name of the triune God depicts our union with Christ, and through our union with Christ, we are brought into the new age of the Spirit. In that sense, Christian baptism is not a baptism of preparation like that of John the Baptist, looking forward to what was to come. It is a baptism of participation, picturing our present participation in Christ, and so our participation in the new age of and by the Spirit. Because of this conceptual connection between baptism and the giving of the Spirit, we can say that not only is baptism a sign of God's promise to us in the gospel, it also serves as a visible seal of that promise. In other words, by the Spirit, God acts in baptism to confirm the truth of the gospel in our hearts. When we come in faith and are baptized into the triune name, God visibly declares a reality that has already been effected by the Spirit. 
He puts his seal upon us. He claims us as his own. We belong to him. We are his. Baptism functions like a wedding ring, providing a physical representation of a promise given and a promise received. Baptism is a visible form of the gospel, but not just the gospel proclaimed. Baptism also displays the gospel being believed and received. In one symbolic act, baptism unites God's grace displayed, human faith exercised, and the church celebrating them both by publicly welcoming a new believer into the global body of Christ, the family of God. What about infant baptism? This discussion of baptism has assumed that the person coming to be baptized is a professing believer, as this is the most explicit form of baptism practiced in the book of Acts. However, many through church history have argued, based primarily on the baptism of households, Acts 16, 15-33, and 1 Corinthians 2.26, and a biblical parallel between baptism and the Old Testament practice of circumcision, that the infant child of believers are also to be baptized. In fact, infant baptism was practiced early in the post-apostolic period and has been practiced by most churches throughout history. Though most churches in the Evangelical Free Church of America practice only believers' baptism, our statement allows for infant baptism also. Again, our statement affirms that baptism does not save a person. We deny that baptism in water is the instrumental cause of regeneration and that the grace of God is effectually conveyed through the administration of the ordinance itself. We affirm that one must come to personal faith in Christ to benefit from his saving work. Those in the free church who practice infant baptism do so within this framework. Our free church forebears determined that neither the time of baptism, whether during infancy for the children of believers, or at a point of personal profession, nor its mode, whether practiced through immersion or the pouring of water, should be considered an essential point of doctrine over which they should separate from other Christians. Therefore, our statement of faith is silent on this issue, and in free churches, either form of baptism, in both time or mode, is acceptable. We continue to debate this issue, but we do not allow it to divide us. This position is held in the free church while maintaining both that local church membership should be composed of believers only and that baptism is not a means of salvation. An acceptance of infant baptism, given the theological understanding of baptism outlined above, may be justified if one compares the presentation of the gospel in baptism to an act of preaching. The validity of preaching is not nullified, by a failure of the hearers to repent and believe, but when they do, that preaching achieves its appointed end. On this ground, the baptism of someone who was baptized as an infant and who has come to faith in Christ can be accepted as a valid baptism, though only their subsequent spirit-prompted response of faith has completed that baptism and made it effective as a true picture of the saving work of God in that person's life. In whatever form, baptism is an integral aspect of the Christian life as an ordinance given by our Lord. The Lord's Supper When Jesus gathered with his disciples in that upper room on the night he was betrayed, 
They celebrated the traditional Jewish Passover meal together. Through this meal, the Jews renewed the memory of that single defining moment in the history of the people of Israel when the angel of death passed over the houses of Israel without harm, but brought death to every firstborn in the houses of the Egyptians. The families of Israel were spared because by faith in God's gracious provision, they had sacrificed a lamb and had dabbed the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorposts. On the next day, the Israelites were set free from their many long years of bondage and began their exodus from Egypt and their movement towards the land of God's promise. Moses declared, This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Exodus twelve fourteen. And so every year, in every Jewish home, those events would be relived. They would come alive in their minds, and the Jews of each new generation would understand themselves as the ones whom God had rescued. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Christ's death. Jesus took that Passover meal and gave it a new significance, pointing it to himself. As he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke twenty two nineteen, Offering them the cup, he said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew twenty six twenty seven through 28 Jesus was giving up himself for his people, like that Passover lamb whose death substituted for the death of the firstborn of Israel. This Christian meal is meant, in Paul's words, to proclaim the Lord's death. 1 Corinthians 11.26 In the Lord's Supper, Jesus was providing a symbolic picture to help us keep in mind forever what he was doing for us. How many men in previous generations, when going off to war, gave their wives or fiancés pictures of themselves as a remembrance until they returned? Referring to a picture prominently displayed by her bedside, a woman might have said, This is Richard, my husband. The picture helped to keep him present in her mind and heart. So Jesus Christ has left such a memento of himself for his bride, the bread and the cup, which set before our eyes his broken body and shed blood. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Christ's death. It vividly reminds us of the cross. And in celebrating this meal, Christians of each new generation understand themselves as those for whom Christ died. The Lord's Supper is a communion with Christ's life. The Lord's Supper is an act of remembrance, but the eating and drinking in the context of a fellowship meal suggests that it may entail more than that. After all, what bride ever ate the photograph of her absent husband? In addition, why did the early Christians choose Sunday and not Friday on which to celebrate this meal? For it was on a Friday that he died. The bread and the cup point us to Christ's atoning death, but our eating and drinking what Christ described as his body and blood symbolize that we also share in Christ's resurrection life. The words of Jesus himself point to this connection, expressing it in such a graphic way that many found it offensive. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6, 53. 
Elsewhere, Jesus used organic imagery to describe our vital relationship with him. I am the vine, you are the branches, John 15:5. His very life flows through us, and the Lord's Supper displays this vital union with Christ. We call this meal the Lord's Supper, and in it we commune with Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The precise nature of this communion with Christ has been understood in various ways through church history. Roman Catholics have so identified the sign, the bread and the wine, with what is signified, the body and the blood of Christ, that the sign, when consecrated by the priest, essentially ceased to exist and only appears to be bread and wine. The Protestant reformers of the 16th century, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Huldrych Zilwangli rejected this view, along with other attendant aspects of Roman Catholic sacramental theology, and so do we. We insist that the sign and what it signified must be distinguished and that failing to do that distorts the gospel. However, the evangelical reformers were not in agreement among themselves about how the sign and what it signified were related and how we communion with Christ at the Lord's Supper. The Lutherans contended that Christ is truly present in, with, and under the physical elements of the bread and the wine, though in a supernatural and heavenly manner. Followers of Zwingli understood the language regarding Christ's body and blood metaphorically and the Lord's Supper primarily as a means of remembrance, while a Calvinist sought a real, though spiritual, presence of Christ in the communion elements. Most in the free church would be closest to Zwingli in their understanding. Nonetheless, these evangelical leaders agreed, and this statement affirms that the Lord's Supper is not a means of communicating God's grace apart from the genuine faith of those who share in this meal, we give latitude in how our communion with Christ and the Lord's Supper is understood, and in what sense those who celebrate this ordinance in genuine faith are nourished. We must be clear, however, that in our celebration of the Lord's Supper, our communion with Christ in whatever manner is by God's grace and spiritual benefit can only come as we subjectively appropriate the meaning of this meal, that is, the gospel through faith. The Lord's Supper is a fellowship in Christ's body. The Lord's Supper is not something that we do alone. It is a practice of the church. As a fellowship meal, at least in symbolic form, it speaks not only of our communion with Christ, but also of our communion with one another as believers. Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. 1 Corinthians 10.17 Our unity as a church is to be evident in our sharing in the Lord's Supper, for it is precisely there that we focus on what Christ has done for us all. The Lord's Supper is a participation in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.16, visibly displaying our unity with other Christians, verse 17. For that reason, this meal is for Christian believers, signifying our unity in Christ as those who come to faith before God, confessing their need of forgiveness and professing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
In other words, it is the same requirement for those who present themselves to be baptized. And whereas baptism is to be once and for all formal point of visible admission into Christ's body, the Lord's Supper is to be the ongoing affirmation of it. So most churches through history have affirmed that this meal is to be shared by baptized believers who come to faith and church discipline often entailed the exclusion of an unrepentant member from participation. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of Christ's coming. In our celebration of the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back in remembrance of what Christ has done, experience his presence with us now, and affirm our present connection to his body, the church, as we come to this table, we also look forward to what is yet to come. Jesus told his disciples at that last supper that he would not drink from the fruit of the vine until that day when he would drink anew with them in his Father's kingdom. Matthew twenty six twenty nine. Paul says that in the Lord's Supper we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. One of the biblical pictures of that glorious future is that of a great banquet, a messianic wedding feast at which the church as the bride of Christ is received by her husband. Isaiah 25, 6, Matthew 8, 11, 22, 4, and 2 Corinthians eleven two, Revelation 19, 7, and 21, verse 2 and 9. A small morsel of bread and a sip of wine or grape juice is no feast, but it is a token of one, a taste, a glimpse, a pointer to our greater hope. Even today, when Jews celebrate Passover, they end the meal by looking forward, saying, next year in Jerusalem, signifying their hope in the coming of the Messiah. When Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back to Jerusalem and Jesus' death and resurrection there, and we look forward to what is yet to come, saying, next year in the glorious kingdom of God. For when we eat and drink, Our souls are nourished in faith as we anticipate that glorious future when our faith will become sight. A summary of the ordinances. To summarize our understanding of the ordinances, our statement affirms, Christ has given his church two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the practice of these ordinances is an essential distinguishing mark of the church. These ordinances are signs that is visible and tangible expressions of the gospel, and as such, they serve to strengthen our faith, confirming and nourishing the believer. The signs, water and baptism, the bread and grape juice or wine and the Lord's Supper, must be distinguished from what they signify, God's saving work in the gospel and Christ's presence with us. The practice of these ordinances does not save us, and we receive spiritual benefit from them only when they are celebrated in genuine faith in Christ. The ordinances serve to separate the believer from the world and to give a visible designation of those who belong to the body of Christ. Our statement denies that either baptism in water or participating in the Lord's Supper is the instrumental cause of regeneration. The grace of God is automatically and effectually conveyed through the administration of the ordinances themselves. 
In addition, our statement does not prescribe the time or mode of baptism, allowing for both credo and pseudo-baptist practices, nor does it define the precise manner in which Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, allowing for a variety of historical evangelical views. Conclusion, the Church and the Gospel God's gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. This means not only that the gospel creates the church, but also that the church proclaims the gospel. And the church proclaims the gospel not simply in what the church is called to do, but in what the church is. The church is the centerpiece of God's purposes for humanity. For the promise of the gospel is that God will redeem a people composed of those from every nation, tribe, people, and language, who will find their unity solely in their common relationship with Jesus Christ as they are united in Him by the Spirit. Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9. And it is in the church that this people to come is now being made visible to the world. In a sense, in the church, the gospel message finds its initial realization. Paul in Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, 13 describes the creation of the one new humanity united in Christ as the purpose of God in all ages now revealed. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 3, 10 through 11. In this way, the church is the first fruits of what is to come. As one writer puts it, the church does communicate to the world what God plans to do because it shows that God is beginning to do it. In Christ, a new age has dawned, and the church is to be anticipatory presence of that new age and an initial signpost of its coming. The church is not just the bearer of the message of reconciliation, The church is a part of the message itself. The church's existence as a community reconciled to God and to one another is what gives the message its credibility, for such a communion is itself the manifestation of the gospel it proclaims. Jesus said as much. In speaking to the Father of his disciples in John 17, Jesus prayed, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, in you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 17, 22 through 23. One way the gospel is to be declared to the world is through the loving unity of Christians. The church is to be a provisional expression of that new humanity united in Christ, which God has graciously purposed to create for his own glory. So the church is missional in its very nature. Who we are is an important part of our proclamation of the gospel to the world. For God's gospel is embodied in this new community called the church. If this is so, then shouldn't every Christian Be a committed member of a church. If you believe, then you must belong. Many still persist in church hopping, always searching for something that might satisfy their desires. Evidently, this is not a new problem for a colleague of Martin Luther in the 16th century. Philip Melathon made this remark, Let us not 
Praise those tramps who wander around and unite with no church because they nowhere find their ideals realized because something is always lacking. We must not be church dabblers. We must dig in and discover the riches that can be had as we live out God's purpose in real fellowship in the life of a local church. For without a commitment to the local church, we haven't rightly understood God's gospel. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast. Thank you.